Momentum and fanfare of some sports team. Perhaps you find your attention wrapped by the newest movies and music. Perhaps you are a devotee of fine dining or the theater. Whatever it might be. We have these things that we love for which we clear not only our schedules, but also our thought life that we might give ourselves to them. And we see here that Paul's mind drifted to the crucified and risen Savior. Paul thought most thoroughly about what it means to declare the gospel message. And what I hope we might see is that Paul's priorities should become our priorities as well. We will see that Paul did not entirely set aside. It's not that he was unfamiliar with other things, but he made sure that he took other things and pulled them into connection with his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in, let's, let's review for a second and catch up where we are. We're, we're in a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul addressed issues of division within the church in Corinth. Chapters 1 to 4 deal largely with arguments and power grabs within the Corinthian congregation. And one of Paul's solutions to draw these people back from haughtiness, pride, and self-conceit was to remind them that every premise of Christianity is lowly. So in chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, Paul pointed out how the message itself is lowly. The message of Christianity is lowly. The notion of salvation through a crucified Jewish carpenter is slightly less than flashy. God has made it His power for rescuing sinners. In verses 26 to to 31, Paul showed how not only the message, but also the members of this church were lowly. No one in the Corinthian congregation was particularly special. All the more if they remember that they live life before God. And lastly, in our text tonight, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul explained how even the minister writing to them is lowly. Paul himself was not a fancy orator, but a straightforward gospel preacher. And I I hope we will come to appreciate more so that the Christian life is not about phenomenal experiences, but is in fact continually about pursuing the risen Christ, the Son of God who died on a cross to purchase our salvation. We're directed to pursue Him in ordinary ways. If, however, we are captivated by the thought of the triune God, then we will indeed find immense delight in contemplating our Savior. So the main point is Paul's priorities in preaching teach us about how we should think about the world. Paul's priorities in preaching teach us how we should think about the world. And we'll consider this in three points. The choice, the collision, and the call. So first, we're going to think about 
the choice. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. This passage falls into two parts, and, and verses 1 and 2 outline the principle of approach that Paul had. And then in verses 3 to 5, Paul showed that he modeled that particular principle among the Corinthians. And we saw last time, right, that Paul pointed to the Corinthians as people whom we would not expect God to choose based on their worldly prestige, but whom God had chosen to be his people nonetheless. And now Paul, so so he had sort of pointed to his readers as examples of lowliness, a brave move, uh, and now Paul wisely turned the tables back on himself uh, to say that lest they think he was being unduly critical, he also was not one whom God should have chosen to use to build his church. His methods were not, as we might say in broader popular church language, relevant. His message did not tickle the ears. Even his appearance was not all that to be desired. Still, he had been and remained God's instrument of evangelism. So then, it ought to be pretty clear that Christianity prioritizes different things than the world does. Paul has written at length that every aspect of of the Christian faith is not what you might expect or especially what the world might want. The message itself is not the usual sort of message. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and, and the ordinary person might think, well, that sounds very well and good for Jesus Christ, and yet I'm not sure why that is supposed to be good news for me. And people are no different than they're in their heart of hearts now than they were then. That's the thing. The, the announcement of Christ risen from the grave thuds against unregenerate ears like a wet paper towel against the floor. We read of that in Acts 17, verse 32 there, says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And it seems like even the the better reaction was, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. And so here's the here's the deal. Christians will all agree that that the sinful heart is deceptive above all things. But but often I think that we overlook the ways that that happens. The, The human heart drifts from the cosmic glory of God to the menial fascination with ourselves. We were designed to love our magnificent creator, which means God made us, crafted us in such a way that we would be most satisfied by who and what God is. We find the fulfillment of our design in worshiping God for his character and works. Most people here know the the first answer to our catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify 
and enjoy God forever, and that's all that I'm saying here. But we let the love of our hearts slide from the dramatic splendor of God's glory to the piddly little things that we create. The Western world has mocked tribal peoples for worshiping statues and sticks that they make, but we bow down to the majesty of our new cars and holiday homes. Do you you see the craziness of that? We make cars to transport us from place to place for our sake, and then we become enamored with this sort of tool and how nice ours might be. Let's let's be honest, a, a fascination with our over-fascination with our vehicles is, is equivalent to being enamored with how nice your hammer is. Because, I mean, both are designed to be tools for us. Or perhaps we've set our gaze on the majesty of our society. We tend to be proud of our cultures, and there's nothing, I mean, inherently wrong with that, unless we distort it into world worship. I mean, I've heard a lot in in recent days about what it means to be British, and and a deep fascination with getting that right because because it's obviously something special. But the thing, here's the thing, if you've, if you've spent any time, well, that's, yeah, that's not to, meant to degrade that, I'm just observing, because here's the thing, if, if you've spent any time walking around London recently, you've undoubtedly noticed lots of scaffolding. And as ugly as it is, the fact that our most precious cultural artifacts are hidden for repair should be a really deep reminder for us. Nothing we make is forever. Everything we make deteriorates. Our homes need upkeep. Our cars break down. The most iconic staples of our society fade and need repair. And so the problem, we get really fascinated with ourselves, which is why Paul said what he said in verses 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't use the philosophical and rhetorical tricks of the day to communicate his method stuck to the straightforward announcement and explanation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to play with the the language of of verse 2 for a a second. Um, The the ESV that we've read certainly communicates Paul's thought. There's, There's nothing 
wrong with it. I'm not deeply criticizing it. But we can make it kind of a bit clearer or, or more pointed for our purposes here. So the translators actually moved the word not from the beginning uh, to make it the word nothing. So if we, if we did a, a really uh, literal rendering of the original, it would say, for I did not choose to know anything among you unless it be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I get, I get the difference between what I just said and what's on your page is not very much. But Paul's original phrasing highlights something um, that it's not so much uh, that Paul totally disregards everything in every sense, but that Paul didn't choose any of the other things. He didn't choose to know the other things in his pastoral work except the person and work of Christ. So he's highlighting a choice. He's, I know that there's all these things I could choose, and I'm not choosing any of those. He didn't choose to focus on anything but Jesus. And it raises a profound question for us. Does it not? What are we choosing to know? It's not that Paul doesn't know anything else. It's not that he despises all the other things. It's not even that the other things are not all right things. No, Paul said, I'm choosing that the only things worth saying are the things about the message of Christ. The choice, the choice is that Paul decided Christ is more important than anything else he could prioritize. That brings us to our second point, the collision. Okay, so uh, the last point highlighted how we have this inclination as sinners to let our love drift from the things that God designed us to enjoy, namely himself, to things of far more dismal glory. And how Paul chose to set aside other things to focus, chose to set aside other things to focus on Christ. And we need to push a bit deeper, I think, into how we take our focus off God, which is the objective of this point. So this point is about the inevitable clash between two ways of thinking and hoping about the world. So read verses 3 to 5 with me. Excuse me. And when I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, Paul's point here is, is pretty clear. Uh, just like the message he delivered and the members he addressed, so also the minister lacks in worldly appeal. He is humble and unstriking in appearance. He has further set aside rhetorical flourish in favor of clear-cut gospel explanation. And although Paul's point was pretty clear, some people have, have taken some interesting slants on this passage. So, so we read in Acts 17 
the account of Paul's speech at the Areopagus. Acts explicitly named some of his hearers as Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. You don't need to know what those are. It doesn't matter. But there is something important about that. So some read Paul's speech as his attempt to engage in philosophical debate with these philosophical parties here. But the interpreters who, with whom I disagree say that when his attempt failed, when he didn't see the outcome he wanted from philosophical debate, Paul turned to his non-rhetorical approach that he's described here in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. So, so they very seriously take these verses, which we consider tonight, to be Paul's reaction to, to what they perceived as failure in Athens, noting, indeed, correctly, that 1 Corinthians was written not long after he left Athens. The issue with that is that nothing in Acts 17 indicates that Paul thought he failed. In fact, when the crowds, verse 34, reveals that some people had become believers. And further, nothing in 1 Corinthians seems to indicate that Paul had adopted his preaching strategies in light of some traumatic philosophical experience. I mean, here's the, here's the thing, right? The, the irony of, of that take on these verses. Paul was actually used to being beaten and dejected for his preaching. So it seems unlikely that he's going to change his rhetorical approach just because he didn't do well in philosophical debate. If he doesn't change because people throw stuff at him, he's probably not going to change because he felt like he didn't do well in an argument. If he felt that way, I don't think he did. The, the point is that Paul had consciously chosen his emphasis on straightforward gospel proclamation simply because he wanted to make sure that Christ received all the glory. It's not because he failed. It's because he wanted Christ to be magnified. He didn't want to use tricks and gimmicks. He wanted to talk about Jesus. He quite plainly stated the reason for his tactics in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul did not want, does not want, anything to shine in his life except for God's power to use him to bring people to faith. He is an ordinary man committed to preaching Christ and that is why God gave him so much success in ministry. And now the question left to us is if we share Paul's hope that the main purpose of our lives would be for God's glory. Do we hope that people would consider us testaments to God's grace or do we hope that people might find us fancy and exciting in and of our, ourselves? Do, do we wish that we 
were impressive figures as we waltz in and out of people's day with flash and gusto? Or do we long for people to see marks of Christ in our lives as we work to display humility, love, and repentance for our family, friends, and neighbors? The collision is that we also must choose our approach to life. And if we want to live in ways that draw attention to ourselves or that magnify God and his goodness, we, like Paul, must choose to set aside worldly priorities. And brings us to our third point, the call. So we saw the need to choose to orient ourselves towards divine things, and we have seen how that choice will put us in conflict with a worldly mindset. And we turn now to see the specific things Paul called us to believe. We give our attention to the very thing that Paul prioritized above all others, Christ crucified. It might be easy to think that this passage encourages a sort of anti-intellectualism. I mean, some have certainly taken Paul's lambast against, uh, or throughout 1 Corinthians 1 and into these verses against words of eloquence, plausible wisdom, and, and lofty speech. They've taken those things as an attack on thinking too hard about anything, including theology and scripture in favor of a simplistic faith. But there's an interesting thing here in this text. I love this sort of stuff. I think this is, yeah, it's probably not good that I like uh, throwing little complications in people's way of thinking, but I do. Uh, Aristotle, right? The, the famous Greek philosopher from the 300s BC made a, a distinction between empty rhetoric, so lofty speech and wisdom, and demonstration, which Paul named as his approach in verse 4. So Paul's point was not that we leave behind every aspect of deep thinking at all, but that we abandon empty vanities of speech, thought, and rhetoric in favor of forthright explanation of the gospel. And that's important for you. That's important for you because Paul does not let us off the hook for being thoughtful people. We should indeed have a simple faith where we plainly and unquestioningly cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ for salvation. But that is not the same thing as a simplistic faith characterized by asking no questions of any sort or in having no desire to learn more about the greatness of our God. I hope you see the difference. To circle back to those things which captivate our hearts and minds, we should be enamored with the gospel. And we should be seeking after an ever-deepening understanding of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. We should be so detached from our desire to experience anything besides Christ. 
So, what this means is that we don't look to the gospel for entertainment. Paul refused to be an amusing orator. Neither then should we expect our churches to become a show for keeping us occupied, dealing with our boredom or catering to our expectations for a nonsensically happy message or or sort of vacuously fun music. We should expect our churches to be centered on Christ, using the tools we have at our disposal to demonstrate that the Spirit works most powerfully through the gospel. Paul was committed to this because he saw the value of Christ himself. He was entranced with the glory of his Savior who was God himself in human nature. Paul preached Christ crucified because Paul knew that Paul was a sinner who deserved to die for his cosmic treason against the Lord creator of the universe. And so he clung to Christ who paid our death penalty by dying on the cross. So we too, for all who know that they are sinners in need of rescue, can find the same life-encompassing hope as Paul if we would flee to Jesus. Giving ourselves to Him by faith, knowing that there is no more glorious message than Christ crucified. So let's pray. Father God, it is easy in this world to hope for exciting things, to to wish for the new levels of experience, to be enamored with the increasingly new of the world. As we read in Acts 17, there were those who loved to gather to hear things that are new. And the world has not changed. But Father God, we do ask that you would so work within your people that we would choose to hear of one thing. Christ crucified. Risen from the grave. Dying for the forgiveness of our sins and being raised for our justification. Entitlement to heaven given to us in the Son of God who has earned our citizenship in your kingdom. We pray that you would fix our eyes, captivate our hearts, and keep us wrapped upon that message that we would have hearts and minds for nothing else and that that would be the driving force of our life. We pray that as we go into this week, we would find little desire for the empty things of the world, Help us to use the things of the world as they are appropriate, but help us to keep our attention, our affections fixated on the glories of Christ crucified. And we pray these things in his name for his sake. Amen.